Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off In-Depth Conversations in Applied Geophysics. In this episode, I speak with David Johnston on reservoir monitoring, the featured special section in July's The Leading Edge. This conversation covers a great deal of valuable information in a short time. David shares why reservoir monitoring is the specialization for generalists, the future and value of carbon sequestration, and why he believes there is another Copernican revolution coming. He also breaks down reservoir monitoring in an easy to understand way by relating it to how we control the temperature in our home. If you are considering specializing in reservoir monitoring, want to learn how to work better with other disciplines, or simply want to hear a great preview of July's The Leading Edge, this episode will meet your goals. David is Managing Director of Differential Seismic LLC, a geophysics consultancy. David retired from ExxonMobil in 2017 after a 38-year career in research, exploration, and production. He was responsible for the development and commercialization of 4D seismic technology in ExxonMobil and was geophysics coordinator for ExxonMobil Production Company. For the full show notes and links to the papers, visit seg.org forward slash podcast. Now for our conversation. Great. So let's, let's just get into it here. So why do you think that there was such a high demand for submissions for this special section on reservoir monitoring? Well, I think it's a good question. I think there are probably three reasons. First, we often think that geophysical reservoir monitoring technology, particularly 4D seismic, is relatively mature. But I think you can see in the uh, in the papers uh, in the section that that's uh, we continue to see new developments in this area. I think the second thing, also historically, there's always been a degree of collaboration among individuals and companies in developing reservoir monitoring technology, and you can see that in many of the papers in this section. And finally, you know, we know that the production cost of oil and gas from existing fields is far cheaper for new field developments. And so, you know, in today's relatively low price environment, there are lots of economic incentives for maximizing recovery. And geophysical reservoir monitoring plays a large role in that. So I think those are the three primary reasons. You know, before exploring these papers individually, you know, you get a chance to look at all of these papers before anybody else does. You know, what resonated with you while working and editing this special section? I actually talked about that in the uh, in the introduction to the special section that you'll see in the leading edge. But I think the first thing is I was struck by the diversity of papers that were submitted to the leading edge. And I, you know, I think we can see this diversity reflected in the wide range of geological settings that are covered by these papers that go from deep water, unconsolidated clastics to more submitted sandstones and onshore fields and then carbonates. And, you know, there's also a diversity in the range of production scenarios. We have water sweep of oil and gas. Uh, there's steam-assisted gravity drainage, or SAG-D, thermal recovery, and enhanced recovery using CO2 injection. And also, I think, finally, that the papers in this section cover a lot more than just time-lapse 3D seismic. And although, you know, I think half the papers are used for surface seismic data to monitor reservoirs, the remainder you know, cover really a diversity of methods. They include, you know, time-lapse VSPs, uh, repeat well logging using distributed acoustic sensing or DAS technology, and even muon tomography. 
And I think in one paper, even the concept of the reservoir is expanded to include monitoring microseismicity that might result from production activity. So that's the first thing that struck me. And the other thing was that there's really a common theme among all the papers of extracting value. And that's either from pulling the greatest amount of information that you can from the data or by demonstrating how the data and the resulting interpretation can be used to improve field management. Yeah, so much variety and, and papers that couldn't even fit it in all in one issue. Has to spread it out over two. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you kind of mentioned this in, in really both responses there, especially the first one. But, you know, how do you see the techniques and the case studies and the tools presented across these papers improving the oil and gas industry? I have already addressed that a bit. You know, it's that the uh, geophysical reservoir monitoring technology really helps us maximize hydrocarbon recovery from existing fields. So, you know, the additional oil and gas that you can be produced from these fields come at a very low cost with no little additional infrastructure that's needed. And that's that's really important in a, in a low price environment. So that's one thing. I think the other thing too is when we have cases like we have uh, enhanced recoveries such as SAG-D that's applied to heavy oil or CO2 floods, these tend to be pretty expensive processes. And so having appropriate reservoir monitoring can increase efficiency and ultimately reduce costs. So that's the second thing. And then finally, I think one of the challenges that the energy industry needs to address as it transitions to a low carbon future is management of greenhouse gas emissions. And one option is the storage of CO2 as part of either enhanced recovery operations or in saline aquifers. And either way, you want to know where the CO2 is going, how much is being stored, and if any is leaking. And geophysical monitoring plays a big role there as well. You know, why has seismic 4D monitoring technology not been explored as widely on gas fields as it has been for oil? Well, I think we need to distinguish between gas fields where production is a result of pressure depletion and those where the gas is being swept by water. And they have very different 4D responses. Uh, And there are actually quite a few examples in the literature of monitoring pressure depletion. What happens in those fields is that we see the effects of geomechanical changes on the seismic response. And sometimes that's in the reservoir, but more often it's in the overburden. And we can detect these changes using time shifts, which can be you know, measured very precisely and very robustly. But it's true. I mean, it's true that there are fewer examples of monitoring water sweep in gas fields. Uh, and there, the interpretation typically relies on amplitude changes. And that's, I think it's why it's important that we see a paper like uh, Peterson and Gerhardt's case study of the Pluto field in Australia. And, you know, sometimes the rock physics in these cases works in your favor, as it does here, and, and sometimes not. But this is a good case study. You know, what new data and discoveries are starting to be possible with an increasing number of wells having these permanently installed fiber optic cables? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there, there's sort of two major issues that we contend with with conventional 4D seismic, and that's the cost of those surveys and also the time between surveys, the time between acquisition of these surveys. And the problem is that some reservoir depletion mechanisms happen so rapidly that if we shoot a 4D survey every two or three years, you're going to easily miss important events within the reservoir. It might be something like an out-of-zone injection, for example, 
or water breakthrough in, into a well. So one approach to dealing with this, and some operators have installed permanent seabed seismic systems, uh, but those are pretty expensive and you have to have some good, strong economic and technical justification for them. But I think with the proliferation of fiber optic cables installed in many of our wells, we now have the opportunity to acquire seismic data more often and cheaper than for surface or seabed systems. And I think the Kiyashenko paper is a really good example of that. But you also suggest that there's an opportunity to acquire new types of data with fiber optic cables, and that's true as well. I think, you know, the past couple of years, we've seen some really interesting experiments and some published in the leading edge, you know, particularly associated with unconventional reservoirs. But in this special section, Pesner et al., you know, show how this kind of hardware can be used to acquire the equivalent of time-lapse well logs using naturally occurring earthquakes as sources. And, and, you know, I was surprised at how repeatable these data can be. And we could use these logs to be, you know, provide very valuable calibration for surface seismic monitoring. You know, speaking of Kiroshenko, I'm I'm always particularly interested when cross-disciplinary aspects of applied geophysics come up. And they're talking about how, you know, with sufficient collaboration across these disciplines using 4D DAS VSP, you know, there could be some very positive outcomes, you know, safe field operations, new wells targeting, better predictive reservoir models. What roles do applied geophysics and these other disciplines working cross-disciplinary have in helping create some of these outcomes? Yeah, so I mean, reservoir monitoring certainly is very much a cross-disciplinary endeavor. I think it's that's really been the most exciting part of my own experience in the industry. And I think there are a few, if any other, geophysical applications that are so tightly integrated with geology, rock physics, reservoir engineering, drilling, and even facilities. And it's been a, a real blast in my career, you know, working in this area. Just last week, I heard John Brain from Shell over in the UK describe 4D seismic not as a niche technology, but as a, a specialization for generalists. And I think that really, you know, does apply here. But anyway, to answer your question, okay, so I'd say that like 15 or 20 years ago, it seemed that 4D seismic data were acquired in reaction to something unexpected that occurred in the reservoir. It might be early water or gas breakthrough in a well, or maybe, as I said before, out-of-zone injection. Or, you know, there's been a previously funded uh, drilling program that data were acquired to support that program. But I think over the years since then, the application of 4D seismic and reservoir monitoring in general has evolved to the point where the data are used, to use your term, proactively uh, to influence reservoir management decisions. And for example, to decide whether or not an infill drilling program is warranted and, and where to locate those wells. We also find that geophysical monitoring helps us to avoid those unexpected occurrences in, in reservoirs. And you know, as an example, field operators routinely use information from 4D seismic to adjust injection or offtake rates to avoid breakthrough. Uh, but I think, you know, more broadly, I'm thinking more broadly, the geophysical data inform us regarding the static and the dynamic properties of our reservoirs. And as you suggest, they can be used to help build more predictive geologic and flow simulation models. 
And we know that the data can help us locate high quality reservoir to identify compartmentalization and permeability pathways. And again, resulting in a better model of the reservoir. But I think also you need to think about the fact that geophysical data in and of themselves are non-unique. So there could be multiple interpretations to a set of data that you have. And so their interpretation really relies on the very models that we're trying to influence. So, you know, good 4D interpretation is a loop and it starts with a thorough understanding of the field's production history, a comprehensive rock physics-based model that relates the reservoir and production properties to the geophysical response. And the loop is then completed when the 4D results are used to update the model. And so I think ultimately geophysical monitoring data helps us to reduce reservoir model uncertainty and that leads to more effective reservoir management and ultimately uh, decreased operating costs. Yeah, do you feel like you yourself have been become a better scientist in your own discipline because you have had the privilege of working across disciplines in your in your field? Well, I've certainly, yes, I, I, I believe that's the case. I, when we first started working in 4D seismic research, and it's been a long time now, uh, I was very lucky to convince management that we wanted to staff the research group, not only with geophysicists and geologists, but also to bring reservoir engineers into the mix. And I think that was probably the first time within Exxon anyway, that we had a truly collaborative and interdisciplinary research team. And, and, and just the perspective that the engineers brought to the table, you know, really changed my whole approach to, uh, to the application of you know, seismic monitoring of a reservoir. So it was really critical for the development of the technology and certainly to get their buy-in uh, in terms of the application of the technology. So having the reservoir engineer uh, working in the research team approach the reservoir engineers in the production assets, uh, they could speak their language, they could explain what we were trying to do and get their uh, agreement that this is something to support. Hmm. Well, you were ahead of your time. <laughs> well, I think you saw that going on in many companies, uh, you know, at least the major companies around the industry back at you know, in the 1990s or something like that. Uh, going back into the special section, Willacy et al., they highlight how automation can help monitor areas under risk of induced seismicity to protect people and the environment. Do you see another area where automation could help offer similar protection? Yeah, I, th I think the key here is continuous monitoring. So anytime you're monitoring continuously, it really begs for automation and also, machine learning is ways to reduce the dimensionality of the data and to reduce interpretation and ultimately decision time. And certainly the, the passive monitoring of induced seismicity described by Wilson et al. Is, is such an example. But there are also other examples of continuous monitoring, several of which are described in the papers in this special section. You know, there's the muon tomography to monitor SAG-D proposed by uh, Pizanka et al. You know, that's a continuous monitoring approach. And then what I mentioned before by uh, Pevsner et al., the use of, of DAS technology to passively monitor near wellbore changes, that, that could also be used continuously. So 
but just try to explain why I think continuous monitoring is important. And I like to compare reservoir monitoring to how we control temperature in our homes. So what if you could only measure your room temperature once or twice a day? Now, how would you know when to turn on or off the furnace or the air conditioner? Well, one of the things you could do is that you could develop a temperature model of your house and you could take into account the heat sources and sinks, the insulation efficiency, radiation and convective heat transfer, the external temperature, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you would calibrate the model with those very few temperature measurements that you have available. Could do that, right? Yeah. And then that model would tell you when to turn on the heat or the air conditioner. Okay, that sounds like a lot of time-consuming work, right? Looks hard, challenging to do, but that's that's pretty much how we manage our reservoirs when we have sparsely spaced for seismic data or any kind of geophysical data. Okay, so question is, how do we actually control temperature in our homes? You know, what we do is that we continuously measure temperature and then compare that value to a set point on the thermostat. And that way, the system can react immediately to deviations from the set point, and you don't have any complicated model. None is required. And that's the advantage of continuous reservoir monitoring. You know, but of course, our measurements are far more complicated than sampling you know, room temperature, right? Yeah. And, and that's why there's a real need for automation and ultimately also a need for machine learning. What is the concept that Murr et al. call production facies? Yeah, it's actually fairly simple. And we've known for a long time that the seismic properties of a reservoir, you know, the velocity and the density, are facies dependent. And it's simplest, let's just think of lithophases. We know that sandstones have different seismic properties than do carbonates and shales, right? So those are very simple facies concepts in, in lithology. And now we can add fluids to the reservoir. So we can define you know, water, oil, or gas-filled sand as separate facies, you know, each one having its own seismic properties. And so what Muir et al. did is to expand on that concept. Let's say, for example, that we have an oil-filled sand that has been swept by water. You know, that's a distinct facies because its seismic properties have changed. A gas-filled sand that's been pressure depleted can also be considered a separate facies. You know, it's really sort of that simple. The key is, is that the velocity and density relationships for each facies are different. You know, a, a lot of times I'll ask how these papers speak to the, the current economics situation, in the oil and gas industry. But on this, based on this conversation, I'm kind of more interested in, in what you think these papers speak to the future situation and economic situation of the oil and gas industry. Well, as I said, I think that as we progress into the future, it's going to become more and more important to maximize recovery in our existing assets. I think that the, the number of exploration opportunities that industry has available to it are diminishing with time. Uh, we see a decrease in the, in the volumes that are being found internationally in new field uh, exploration. And so being able to extract the most out of our existing reservoirs not only adds significant value to those reservoirs, but also 
you know, reduces a lot of exposures that we might have in rank exploration opportunities, environmental exposures, for example, or minimize working with existing fields with existing facilities. So I think that hopefully we'll see a transition to lower cost monitoring technology. I think we have to see that. As I said, we'll have to see some sort of transition to more continuous monitoring technology, whether that's with, you know, DOS approaches or other kinds of geophysical monitoring techniques. And, you know, again, mixing in ideas like machine learning as a critical part of the interpretation process. Looking at the topic of CO2 sequestration, what particularly around that do you what research, what studies, what are you kind of interested in seeing develop next around that particular topic? So that's sort of interesting because I think in some areas of the world, you're seeing the regulatory agencies requiring geophysical monitoring as part of the CO2 storage process. And so, you know, it becomes imperative to develop techniques that do several things. One, you want to make sure that you know where the CO2 is going and and track any uh, deviation from expectations. You also want to make sure that there's no leakage of the CO2 above the cap rock. And, and that's pretty straightforward for 4D seismic or other geophysical monitoring techniques to, to handle. Uh, the more challenging aspect uh, for CO2 storage is determining how much CO2 is actually being stored in the in the subsurface and that becomes a lot more challenging for certainly for seismic data but almost any geophysical monitoring uh, technology to deal with and you know part of the problem is is that the co2 gets some of it gets dissolved say in in the brine some of it is used to actually geochemically alter the, the reservoir rock itself and you know some of it might be actually free gas or something that we can you know measure with seismic data but it becomes a very challenging objective that, that we we try to achieve but i think that's where we need to get with uh with geophysical monitoring technology and maybe the combination of seismic and gravity or em or you know, maybe even muon uh, tomography uh, might be able to help address some of those issues in terms of storage capacity and uh, verific- validation, verification of storage of, of CO2. Flipping uh, topics a little bit here as we, we get down the home stretch. You know, if you could offer one piece of advice for someone looking to succeed in your field, what would it be? Uh, I would certainly want to make sure that I thoroughly understood the terminology used by the reservoir engineers, right? So ultimately, although 4D seismic and geophysical monitoring are based in geophysical technology, they are a reservoir engineering tool. And so understanding the challenges that the reservoir engineers face, understanding the challenges that the uh, asset teams that operate these fields face, and be a- being able to communicate in their terms, I think is really essential for success. And that's one thing I've tried to do in my, in my own career. And, and lastly, if you could solve just one mystery as a scientist, what would you hope to solve? What would you want to solve? So that is really, really broad. Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, 
I, I'm going to have to go back to an interest of mine. It goes back more than 40 years. And when I was a student, I did research in planetary evolution, and I focused mostly on the moon and Mars. And so I was, I'd really like to know if there's life elsewhere in the universe. And of course, Mars is the closest place to look. Right? So I have experience working on Mars. Anyway, this, the thing I like about this question is not just a scientific question. I mean, the answer, whatever it is, whether it's yes or no, is going to really significantly impact our perception of our place in the cosmos. And I, and I suspect that one way or another, we're going to have another Copernican revolution. Yeah, I could be wrong, but I think we will. Uh, but anyway, I think it's essential to, to find out the answer to that question. So I'm sure there are probably more pressing questions, but I will... Uh, that is honestly a, a common refrain of, of searching for life on other planets. So I, I, you're certainly not alone in wanting to know. But at least it ties back to my own experience. And, uh, you know, as, as a student, I did work in preparation for the early Viking landers on Mars. And it was, uh, unfortunately, the experiments didn't work out very well because we we're looking at the seismic equipment on those two Viking landers. One did not work at all. And the other one was located up on the lander itself, so it really couldn't detect Mars quakes, but was a really good way of uh, determining how strongly the wind was blowing. Uh, yeah. but anyway, <laughs> we had to wait till very recently to get actual uh, records of Mars quakes, but now we have them. It I, makes me smile every time I hear someone say Mars quakes. Just, uh, I like that. Is there any, anything that I should have asked you that I did not? Well, I don't know. I think that you know people can go ahead and read the introduction you know i tried to pull these papers together in an order that sort of makes sense uh it's challenging you know to do that uh you know because there is that diversity of, of papers uh but i think that there is a progression uh a logical progressions through the uh the papers that are that are in the july issue but i would also like to make sure i point out that we had space limitations right and in the july issue that forced us to print two more papers in a later issue of the leading edge and these are both really excellent case studies of 4d seismic technology and they're applied to very different geological and production settings so we already mentioned uh muir at all they're looking at 4d inversion applied to monitoring enhanced oil recovery uh, using CO2 in, in Montana. And then uh, Aikuola uh, et al. described the latest 4D seismic data from the Bonga field, which is deep water Nigeria, and has been acquired using ocean bottom node technology. So I hope the listeners you know, look for these two papers in the, in, in the coming months. Yeah, and, and thankfully you you were able to talk about all of them in your introduction, so they'll they'll get a chance to sneak peek at that. And they, I always I always appreciate a thorough introduction to these special sections. So thank you for writing that and looking to put a, a coherent theme to the papers that exist. So thank you again for all your work. This was a big uh, undertaking this month with all these specials, with all these papers. And thank you for your insight on on what they provide this month. It's my pleasure. I'm glad I could do it. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast. Please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this episode. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to our website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all our episodes 
and learn how you can listen to this podcast directly on your phone without downloading an app. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Crockett, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.